All right, thanks, Peter and Mark. Uh, good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha Online. Uh, welcome back to um, most of you, I'm guessing. Uh, we are in Mark right now. The Gospel of Mark will be in Mark 10 today if you want to turn there in a Bible or phone app. We'll get to that in a second. But a quick announcement. We um, would like to take communion together next week, uh, which we normally do once a month, a bit more formally. Though you guys know it's always available in church when we gather here. But um, we'd like to do that. So we want to announce it a week ahead of time. So you had a chance to buy the elements uh, this week, whether wine or juice and some bread. And then for those of you who are part of our church um, who would like to uh, take it with us, who are Christians, who would like to remember the gospel through communion, we will do that to end the service next week on April 5. So just uh, give you a week heads up there on what's going to happen. Uh, all of you are welcome to tune in. If you're uh, tuning in and, and you're not a part of our church, you're very welcome to listen uh, but it'll be a time for Hiawatha people who are believers uh, to, to take together. So, All right, so uh, we are in Mark right now, the Gospel of Mark, five sermons, four weeks in the Gospel of Mark. Today is Mark 10, 17 to 22. And remember, we're calling this series actually Approaching Easter in Mark, which has a bit of a double meaning for us in this series. First, uh, kind of the obvious layer is it means that we're literally approaching Easter in the calendar, but also in the Gospel of Mark. We're going chronologically through Jesus' ministry, each week getting a bit closer to his death, and then, of course, his resurrection. But second, it also means these passages themselves that come before his death and resurrection anticipate them somehow, whether straight up with something Jesus says, or more literally with some commentary Mark gives, or symbolically with something Jesus does or teaches. And so in this way, the whole Bible actually approaches Good Friday and approaches Easter, all of the smaller parts falling subservient to the gospel narratives themselves. So have that in mind as we continue our way through this series today in Mark 10, a passage known sometimes as the rich young ruler passage or the rich young man passage. Essentially, it's a great little passage about an interaction that Jesus has with a man seeking salvation, a man seeking eternal life. So let's read this together. Mark 10, 17 to 22. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions." All right, so here's how we're going to frame the sermon today. This man had three big misconceptions that Jesus helps expose in love. And that's actually the first thing I wanted to point at today is in verse 21, it says straight up, Jesus loved this man. He's not tricking him. He's not leading him on. He's not bothered or inconvenienced by him. He loved him like he loves you. And love for Jesus here looked like, one, speaking hard truth, but then, two, an invitation to follow him and be with him. That's really key. We'll talk more about that later on. 
But today what I want to do is take the scenic route through these three misconceptions to help us understand what good gospel theology really is, or to remember it, for those of you who already know what it is. But also to think more about who Jesus truly is. This is a wonderful passage. Jesus is really confronting a lot of bad theology here and misconceptions and and the way he talks with this man and the way he talks with us through this man. But also, ultimately, because this is the man's question, what does it mean to be saved? How do we actually get eternal life? How do we receive the inheritance, he says, of eternal life? That's the ultimate question. All right, so three big misconceptions. Here's the first one. The first misconception that the rich young ruler has is a misconception of what it means to be good. He has a misconception of what it means to be good. The first thing the man says to Jesus is, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' answer is not maybe what you might expect. He, He responds with, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So don't get too hung up on the fact that Jesus is placing all of the goodness on God the Father here versus himself. As God's son, Jesus certainly is good. But he starts this way to knock this guy back on his heels a bit to immediately challenge his notion of what goodness is. Aletha and I were listening to a podcast last summer when I was on sabbatical on Mr. Rogers. And it was a great 10-part series, but the the very first part of the first podcast These two hosts start out by kind of describing what it was like to research him. This one girl, she she said she was kind of a fangirl of of him in some ways. There was a guy who was a host as well. They were both talking about this, though. And they were saying when they analyzed Mr. Rogers' life, it made them wonder if they were really good at all. And so if you know anything about him, he is just kind of like he's this epitome of Mr. Rogers' is the epitome of kindness and selflessness in a lot of ways. And so for them... It kind of sent them on this deep dive philosophically, like, what does it really mean to be good? What does it mean to do good? And am I really good? And so in other words, this is more of my commentary now, but in other words, it's really easy to look out into the world or into your church or into your family or into your friendship circles and find someone who was a much better person than you are. This is a healthy and necessary part of coming to terms with Jesus, which is why this is happening here in Mark 10, which is why Jesus is starting to answer this man's inquiry this way. And it's certainly a part of coming to understand what the true gospel is. So to be clear, back to Mark 10, Jesus says, no one is good except God alone, which means what about this man? It means he's not good, right? He's not good because he's not God. He likely came into this whole interaction with Jesus thinking that his level of moral goodness as a stringent law keeper wasn't too far off of Jesus's. Maybe reading between the lines here a bit, he's saying, hey Jesus, it's me, another good person like you. We're not that unalike, you and me. So I've got a question for you. I want to move from being good to being great. How do I do that? And Jesus says in love back to him, stop right there. You're not a good person. In fact, no one is. As Psalm 14.1 says in the Old Testament, which is quoted in Romans 3 in the New Testament, no one does good. 
No one does good. All right? Now, now this is, it's not an exaggeration to say that if we don't start here, this is why I think Jesus is starting here with this man. But if we don't, in general, start here theologically or start here in a, a philosophical manner, it's not an exaggeration to say that it's almost impossible to be a Christian. Jesus' response might seem jarring, but he knows the gospel isn't something that you add to your goodness. It's something you cling to in spite of your wickedness. And so quite simply, if we believe that we're not good, that no one is good, but only God is good, then where would we go for goodness? Where would we go for help? Not to ourselves, right? It would change the whole conversation. It would change the question. We would not go to ourselves. We would go to him. And so even Jesus' question here could kind of be flipped around onto us. We could say about ourselves, like, why do I call myself good? That's a great theological and philosophical question. Why do I call myself good? Why do I do that? Why do I call other people good? Keep those questions cued in your mind as we go forward here. But that's the first misconception. He has a misconception wholesale about what it means to be good. All right. The second layer is like it, like the first layer, but a little bit more specific. His second misconception is a misconception about wealth. A misconception about the threat of wealth. He misconceives the danger of money. He almost puts it in another category altogether than other threats or sins. This is kind of the sense you get when you read this short exchange he has with Jesus. Almost like he's taking pride in how clean his living room is, even though the rest of his house is actively burning down all around him. That's how misguided he is. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, the Bible says. Jesus says elsewhere, you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. And for this man, he was just oblivious to the threat that trusting in money posed to his own soul. In all his law-keeping endeavors, he was turned inward, not realizing that he was trusting in his own strength rather than God's. And that's the problem with money. It's not necessarily sinful to be rich. There are named Christians in the New Testament that had a lot of money. Philemon was one of them. We just preached that book a few months ago at Hiawatha. So it's not necessarily wrong to have money or to be rich, but it is sinful to trust in the wealth and to let it dilute your perceived need for grace. Let me say that one more time. It's super important. It is sinful to trust in the wealth and to let it dilute your perceived need for grace. This is why it can be hard for rich people to believe the gospel. Jesus says in the passage right after this one in Mark 10.23, how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Because the rich person, this is my commentary now, because the rich person doesn't believe he's that bad of a person. Money has skewed his own sense of self-worth and self-righteousness, which in turn shapes his own, how, how he perceives himself, but also how he perceives God, how he views God, how he views things like religion 
prayer, belief, church, good works, everything. Ultimately, his need or lack of need for grace. So let me say it again a little bit differently. The core issue here is not money. In one sense, this is a passage about money. In another sense, it's not a passage about money. So it's kind of both. But let me say it again. The core issue here for for this man is that Jesus helps expose the fact that he trusted in his own good works. He trusted in himself. And we see that with uh, the fact that he lists out the commandments as well and and the fact that he says, teacher, I've kept these since I was a boy. But money was just the symptom. Trust in the self was the true disease. Lots of wealth, even subconsciously for this man, equated to lots of perceived goodness, which in turn was keeping him from salvation. All right, these two first misconceptions lead into the third and final one. So we need to start there, and I think this is why Jesus, in a microcosm kind of way, is starting this way with this man. We have to have the dark background against which the bright gospel can shine and contrast all the more. And so these first two things, whether a broad misconception of of what goodness is or a more specific misconception of the threat of wealth, both of them are, are the backdrop, that this is something this guy just does not see. He's blind to it. We all are until the truth of the matter, the truth of Christ kind of exposes it. All right, so these first two things lead into the third thing and the final misconception, which is a misconception of Jesus and a misconception of salvation. He misconceives Christ. He misconceives who he is, and he misconceives what it means to be saved. So before we focused on the young man calling Jesus good, now we focus on him calling him teacher. And one of the problems with addressing Jesus as a teacher is in how it implies that he's asking Jesus for a a quick lesson, for something to add to his already formidable arsenal of awesomeness. Then he presumably thought he would maybe just go back home and start to apply the lesson from the teacher. Maybe feeling better about himself as he does it. But here's the thing. Jesus is not ultimately a teacher. And Jesus isn't a lawgiver like this guy wrongly assumes. When Jesus cites the commandments here, some of the Ten Commandments in his exchange with this man, he's not actually saying that that's the answer. He's not actually saying that keeping the commandments saves you, like in the Old Testament, how commandment keeping was how the covenant was maintained with God. Instead, Jesus is pointing to the commandments so the guy can be exposed, which is what the law does. It exposes our sin and makes it worse because we can't keep it. It exposes, it lays bare. And so Jesus lays one more requirement down, and the guy says, all these I've kept from my youth, and Jesus in love uh, doesn't even go there. Like he could have said, really? Let's talk about that. You know, and said, no, you haven't. But he doesn't. But he does lay one more requirement down that he knows will expose where his sinful heart really was. What he was really trusting in. And here it is. Sell all you have, give to the poor, then come follow me. All right? 
Now, here's the massive problem for this rich, trusting in myself and my good works and my wealth kind of guy. That's not really an easily applicable moral lesson, is it? Sell all you have, give to the poor, then come follow me. And by the way, what kind of teacher talks this way? Follow me? I mean, you can almost get inside the guy's head and think, oh, really, Jesus? Sorry, I meant I just wanted something to do. And then I can just let you go and keep teaching people. I didn't mean to, like, imply I needed to be with you. But you want me to be with you? And so there are two things to see here with, in this misconception. So I'm, I'm speaking in broader terms here about his misconception about Jesus and salvation, but digging a little bit deeper. The first thing is, he asked the wrong question. The rich young ruler asked the wrong question right off the bat. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the wrong question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This guy is quite religious. He's an avid law keeper, but he's a billion miles away from Christianity and from salvation. The right question is, what has Jesus done? Or what does he offer me? What, what, how is he going to save me? What is he going to do? So the answer to the rich young ruler's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, the answer to that question actually is nothing except to believe in Jesus. But instead of saying nothing, Jesus walks this guy through the cavernous, treacherous trail of the law to see just how much he needed the answer to be nothing. But he didn't understand or believe He loved himself way too much. But try to like think of this story as um, an almost an alternate universe or think about this story happening differently. What if the rich young ruler would have said, Jesus, I've tried to keep all those laws, but I haven't been able to. Even when when I am able to sometimes, my heart is far from God when I do it. My motives are way off. And a lot of times, I just don't want to do good even when I'm doing it. So I might be doing good, but I'm realizing I'm not good. What if he would have said that? Or what if he would have said, I realize now I've worshipped money my whole life and I just can't let it go. I can't, I like physically can't do what you're asking me to do. I can't give away every penny. I can't do that. Help me. It feels impossible to give away all that I have. I can't do it. What if you would have said that? And by the way, wouldn't that have sounded a lot like the sick elsewhere in the Gospels who cry out, Jesus, heal me. I can't heal myself. See, they're physically sick. This guy's sick on the law, or he's sick on himself, or he's sick spiritually. But that would have been the same kind of cry out to Jesus, would it not? See, if he had that posture towards Jesus, or that response to what he's saying, maybe Jesus would have looked on him in love and said, now you understand. Just come follow me and be with me. Instead, the man goes back to his wealth. He goes back to the commandments. He goes back to the law. And he goes back to himself sad. And that's a huge lesson to see here that I'm not going to really expound upon in too much detail today, but I do want you to see it narratively. The commandments, 
breed sadness. The law breeds sadness and separation from Jesus. But Jesus breeds joy. And that's the second thing here to focus on. The first was he asked the wrong question. The second, I've already kind of said it. But the second thing is he just chose to not follow Jesus. He, he rejected the call. This is a common thing Jesus does after he heals or interacts with someone in the Gospels is he invites them to follow him. But here's what's important to ask when you see these types of interactions and invitations in the Gospel accounts. Where is he going? Where is Jesus going? This isn't indiscriminate, right? He's going to Jerusalem. And what is he going to Jerusalem to do? He's going to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. The invitation for those healed then, the invitation for those who are called, like this rich young ruler, even though he didn't come, is to follow Jesus to Jerusalem where he would truly heal, where he would truly call, where he would truly save. And here's the thing. This is almost its own point, what I'm about to say here, and probably the most important thing I'm going to say in the whole sermon. So please hear this. If the rich young ruler followed Jesus to Jerusalem, he would have realized that he wasn't the only rich young ruler in the story. That his whole interaction with Jesus was not just an invitation away from himself to Jesus, but that the whole interaction served a prophetic and symbolic purpose. Namely, that Jesus himself was the true rich young ruler who succeeded where this guy failed. Jesus was the true rich man who then became poor by leaving the riches of heaven to come to earth and condescend himself. And who then gave away, quote, all that he had, even his very life, for the sake of the truly poor ones, us. See, not only is there movement in this passage from the law to Jesus, but there's also movement from the rich young ruler to Jesus who fulfills and surpasses him. The idea being, we can't keep the law. We, can't, we haven't kept them. But Jesus' solution is not to teach us how to keep them better, but to pass them up with himself on that bloody cross 2,000 years ago. So that now, all that is needed is to believe in and trust in him the true ruler who has left the wealth of heaven to give it all away for us that we might live. So that's what I want you guys to see here. And that's what I think Jesus wants for the rich young man. That's what God, what God wants through the Gospel of Mark, the author, Mark himself, but God wants through him. This is the lesson. The point is not for you to give away all your money. I mean, which one of you has done that? None of you have done that. I haven't done that. That's not the point. The point is, we haven't. The point is, we can't do it because we're not good. No one's good. But the point then is, Jesus has done it. He took on what the rich young ruler wasn't or, or couldn't become. He became the true and, and, and ultimate 
rich young ruler. He gave away everything. He bled on the cross wholly and fully for you and me that we might live. Us, poor, weak, weary, and wounded sinners who the only hope we have in the universe is that Jesus would come and call our name out of that tomb. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this passage uh, that in, in a kind of one fellow swoop, it uh, reminds us that um, uh, really of kind of the back, dark, uh, dark background of our, our stories, which is that we're sinners and that we're incapable. Uh, at, at the same time, it shows us the bright foreground. God, help us in, in a way, as we just heard this, but maybe throughout our weeks, to kind of take that scenic route in our own minds and souls, uh, to take that dark, kind of cavernous, treacherous trail of the law and to see how we have not done what's required. But the gospel is not Christ helping us to do what's required. It's to pass up the requirements with just his body and his blood and his ultimate and eventual resurrection and defeat of death. That is true for all of us today. It's true for everyone listening. It's true for Hiawatha Church. It's true for me. It's true for Peter and Spence and Mark. We need you, Jesus. Please save us from our sins. Thank you for becoming poor so we could become rich. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.